Well, if you will, open me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Gospel of John, chapter 6. We'll take a short break from Second Peter this morning. Focus our attention, our hearts, and our minds on Christmas, the birth of Christ. And I want to think specifically this morning about the reason why he came. And there are, of course, a variety of passages that we could go to that say something about his coming, what the purpose of that was. But I want to go this morning to John 6 and listen to Jesus speak specifically about this very matter. So that as we think about and celebrate his birth, we have his words in mind that are defining for us at least one of the things that he came to do. So John chapter 6, we're going to pick up in the middle of this larger discourse, and we're going to pick up in verse 38, and I just want to read verse 38 to verse 40. So John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and recording the words of Jesus here. Jesus is speaking and he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we enter into this Christmas Day, in this Christmas season, there can be lots of chaos and hustle and bustle and distractions. We can often and easily forget what it is that we are celebrating and why it is that we are celebrating the birth of Jesus. And here in these very words, you tell us, you remind us of this simple truth. The Son of God entered into the world and took upon himself human flesh in the incarnation to do your will to save the people you have given him, to give them eternal life, and to raise them up on the last day. This is the message of salvation. And as we 
to look with our eyes of faith to the birth of Christ, we are remembering that in his birth, our Savior was born. And so, Father, I pray for our time this morning as we listen to the words of Christ and listen to the message of Christmas, that we would respond how you have commanded all people to respond, that we would believe in the Son and so have eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, this morning as we celebrate Christmas and the birth of Jesus Christ, I want us to simply meditate on the most basic and most fundamental truths of the gospel. As you all know, the the Bible is a book that can be searched and studied for all eternity. You never reach the bottom of it. You can study one particular matter and you can search its depth and you will never reach the bottom. There is always something to learn. There is always something to apply. And God is always speaking to us through his revealed word. When you read through the Bible one time, of course, there are certain things that stand out to you, that you catch, that speak to you specifically, that correct you, rebuke you, encourage you, and then you read through the Bible again, and it's as if you've never read it before. There's all new things that, that come. The more you read the Bible, the deeper your knowledge becomes, and of course, if you obey the Word of God by faith, the more godly you become. But it can be easy to go down certain trails in Scripture and forget the most basic message with all of the different issues that go on in our society. We can often read Scripture strictly with a view towards these things. What does the Bible say about this matter? What does it say about that one and this particular issue that is going on? We can read Scripture with a view towards the issues, and that's okay. It has a place. We do need to do that, especially when there is some pressing matter and we need biblical wisdom. We, We go to Scripture. We search the Scriptures with respect to those matters. But Sometimes we just need to be reminded of that simple gospel message. We need to get back to the basics and hear the fundamentals of the faith. And that's what I intend to do today. The words of Jesus that we have just read from John's gospel summarize basically the whole of the gospel for us. It explains the beginning and the end of the gospel. It explains the reason why Jesus came into the world and how sinners are to respond to him. It reaches all the way back into eternity past to teach us what the will and the purposes of God are in the world And it stretches all the way into eternity future. 
to reveal to us what is the outcome of all of these things. What is the outcome going to be of the will of God and the outcome of those who believe in Jesus? As we're remembering the birth of Christ today, these short few verses spoken by Jesus himself tell us who he is and what he came into the world to do. And so as we consider these words of Christ this morning, I want us to look first of all at, in essence, who he is and and, and more specific, where he's come from. What are his origins? We'll consider that first of all, the origins of Jesus. Notice with me again what Jesus says in verse 38. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now again, we are, of course, picking up in the middle of a larger discourse, but in the immediate context, Jesus has just introduced the matters of election and assurance. Verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Language of election. And then he adds, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. A promise of assurance for those who come to Him. Verses 38 to 40 then expands on this initial statement of Jesus. Jesus is going to, to unpack these truths even further. What does He mean? That the Father has given Him a people. What does it mean to come to Him? What does it mean that I will never be cast out if I come to Him, if I believe in Him? And here, Jesus begins to explain further His relationship to the Father and the fact of the Father giving Him a people. And in His explanation, He speaks here of where he has come from. He says again, I have come down from heaven. Jesus was, of course, we know from the Gospels, born in Bethlehem. Grew up in Nazareth. And for anyone else, that would be a sufficient explanation as to where you come from. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. I grew up in Birmingham. Someone asked me, where are you from? I'm going to tell them, I'm from Birmingham. And that answers the question. That doesn't completely answer the question, though, for Jesus. If he was asked, where are you from? He would say, of course, I'm from Bethlehem or I'm from Nazareth. That would be true, but it would still be incomplete. Jesus is unlike us in that he has a prehistory. His origins are not dated to the moment of his birth. 
and his origins are not the result of his conception or his birth, but his conception is the result of his origins. He comes from heaven. He existed before he existed in the world as a man. And he existed as the eternal son. He did not have a beginning. He did not have a moment, even in heaven itself, where he came into existence. But he has always existed, and all existence itself has its existence from him. All things are made through him, by him. For him and to him. The beginning of John's gospel puts it this way. John refers, of course, there to Jesus as the word or the logos. And he says in chapter one, in the beginning was the word, which means not that the word came into existence at the beginning, but that he already was in existence when there was a beginning, when there was the creation of heaven and earth in Genesis 1-1, prior to Genesis 1-1 even happening, there was the Son. And he continues in the Gospel. He says, and the Word was with God. The meaning of the, the preposition there communicates a very intimate, personal relationship with someone. You could, in essence, communicate it as, as, as if it was the word was, was face-to-face or eye-to-eye with God. It is the closest of relationships that existed between the word, the Son, and God, the Father. Verse 18 of chapter 1 says that Jesus, the Son, was in fact in the bosom of the Father. And Jesus says of Himself and the Father in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Word as the Son and God as the Father existed from all eternity in an eternal relationship of love. But John also adds this. He says in chapter 1, verse 1 again, he says the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word, the eternal Son, can be, of course, distinguished from God, the Father, as a different, what theologians call subsistence or person, And yet, simultaneously, he is identified as God. Which is to say, as the creeds and the confessions have long said, that there is only one God. The confession of monotheism, that there is only one God, has not changed. But of course, this one being of God is not like you and me. He's altogether different. He is as different from us as, of course, the Creator is from 
creatures. There's a vast gulf of difference. There is no one or no thing that we can compare him to. And in his eternal existence, in his very being, he exists eternally as three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when Jesus says that he has come from heaven, we are to understand his words as indicating that he is eternal. He is the eternal word, the eternal son who has left the eternal glory of heaven, humbled himself by becoming a man and has entered into our existence. John 1.14 puts it this way. And the word, that eternal word, became flesh and dwelt among us. He did not cease being God, but now something new had occurred. The eternal, divine Son of God took upon himself our very nature. He entered into the world as a man. But Jesus here not only speaks of his origins in terms of coming from heaven, but also in the sense of being sent. He was sent from heaven. He comes willingly, no doubt. The will of the Father is the very will of the Son, as we will see in a moment. But in the relationship between the Father and the Son, Jesus the Son was sent. You can see in verses 38 and 39 that he refers to him who sent me. And in the parallel line in verse 40, he identifies he who sent me as my father. Which means that when he comes from heaven, he comes with a purpose. This is the second thing that I want to look at this morning and consider the purpose of his coming. Here's where we get into that good, simple gospel message. We start in, in, in the realm of eternity, in the realm of mystery, in the realm of things that are beyond our full comprehension. And now we come to the point where we are, we are to listen to why that eternal son has come into the world. He has a purpose. Jesus says in verse 38, again, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. One of the purposes of his coming into the world is to do the will of the Father. The will of the Father is his will. When you see, for example, Jesus working miracles, when you see him healing the sick, when you see him raising the dead, that is not only his own will. That's the will of the Father. He is doing exactly what the Father wants him to do. 
when you hear Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom, rebuking hypocrisy of the self-righteous, when, when you hear him offering the forgiveness of sins to any who would come, his very words are the exact words of the Father. There is no separation between the two. To hear Jesus speak is to hear the words of God. This is one of the reasons why, as well, at Jesus' baptism, his transfiguration, the Father, of course, spoke from heaven. But he said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Why? Because his words are the very words of God. To hear him is to hear God. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. And the only God who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. God wanted to reveal himself to the world. And he has done so exactly in and through his Son, by the Son, doing the will of the Father. Additionally, another purpose we see in Jesus' coming is that he lose none of God's people. He comes into the world so that he may lose nothing of all that has been given to him. So in verse 38, Jesus says that he's come to do the will of the Father. And then in verse 39, he states what that will is. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Now, don't overlook that statement. That is a very important statement. The will of the Father for the Son is that he lose nothing of all that he has given him. Jesus unequivocally states that the Father has given to him a people. This is a people given to him from all eternity. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1 verse 4. He says of believers that we were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. In eternity past, God had a plan of redemption. He had a plan to save a people for himself. And that plan is carried out through a transaction between the Father and the Son. The Father has a people whom he gives to the Son. And the Son has a people whom he receives from the Father. And his mission, when he comes into the world, is to save that people. It is to lay his life down for his sheep, the sheep whom he knows by name because they've been given to him from the Father. We also find a third purpose for the coming of the Son, which is closely related 
to his purpose in not losing any of his people. And the third purpose is that he will raise his people on the last day. Notice again, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The ultimate means by which Jesus carries out the will of the Father in losing none of the people who has been given to him is by raising them from the dead. That is the ultimate means by which he carries out the will of the Father. In other words, if at any point from eternity past to the present to the last day, there is someone whom the Father has given to the Son who is not raised to eternal life, the Father's will would not be accomplished and the Son would have failed in His purpose. You understand the implications of that there? There is no such thing as a person who has been given from the Father to the Son who does not believe and who is not saved and who will not be raised on the last day. There is no one who falls through the cracks leading up to that moment. Everyone the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son and will be raised up on the last day. The failure of the Son to lose someone, to, to, to genuinely have someone who, who came to Him and then, and then falls away, is a hypothetical that would never actually happen. The Father's will will never fail and the Son will never fail to accomplish it. Which means that there is no sense in which those who belong to Christ will ever be lost. Our salvation, then, is grounded in eternity past, in the will of God, and is as fixed in the future as is the sun's rising in the morning. It is so complete that when the Apostle Paul speaks of our salvation, our being called, our being predestined, our being justified, he is able to speak of our final glorification as if it has already occurred. We who have been called and justified are glorified. How can that be? Because all whom the Father has given to the Son will be raised on the last day. 
Our salvation, friends, is rooted not in our own will, but in the will of God. And because of that, our security is firm. As we think specifically about the birth of Christ this Christmas morning, what Jesus' words tell us about his birth is that it was very much a missionary birth. It was a birth with a great purpose. The birth of Christ is not just a nice story about a great man who was born in a lowly manger. It is the revelation of God's eternal plan to save his people. When we remember the lowly babe, we are remembering the birth of our Savior and our salvation. And we are witnessing through the pages of Scripture the fulfillment of God's will to keep and to lose none of those who are His. There's still a third matter that I want us to consider finally this morning, which is the message of the Son. We've thus far considered the profound words of Jesus that teach us about the will of God from before the world even began. But of course, the question that often arises is what are we to do with such knowledge? As we, as we learn, as we come to understand things that have been planned from before we even took our first breath, what does that mean for us? What are we to do with this? What does it imply? And Jesus answers these questions by proclaiming what God's will is for us. We saw what, Je what, what God's will is for Jesus. What is his will for us? And Jesus gives the answer here in verse 40. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. For all of its depths, for all of its breadths and its heights and its widths, the message of the gospel is really quite simple. It boils down to a very simple message. We are to believe in Jesus. That's our call. That's the command of God to all people. Believe in Jesus. How can someone be saved? How can someone know that the Father from all eternity has given them to the Son? How can I know that the electing love of God has fallen upon me? You believe. You believe in 
the Son. Now, this is important for everyone, but I especially want you children to be hearing these words this morning. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I know your parents would desire nothing more than for you to respond as God commands you to respond by believing in his son. This is the most important thing you could ever do. But what does that mean? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Believing in Jesus is not just about believing certain facts about him. Right? We, we believe in all kinds of different facts about the world, right? We believe that the sun rises. We believe that it's cold outside. We believe that snow is white. These are facts. We believe these things. These are true. But this is not what is intended by believing in Jesus. It includes that. We must believe that he is the son of God. We must believe that he exists. It includes that, but it's much more. It is not just a matter of believing facts about him in your head. Neither is it a matter of inheriting belief from your family, from your parents. Your parents cannot believe for you. Because you are born into a Christian home means that you will be raised, Lord willing, under the truths of the gospel. But that does not make you a believer. You must believe yourself in Christ. To believe in Jesus means, in essence, that you trust him. I think that's the, probably the best English word that we can, we can use to capture the, the essence of what it means to believe in Jesus, to, to capture the, the use of the mind and the heart and the will and the affection. You trust him. You trust in his word. You trust what he says. And your parents make a promise to you. You don't doubt what that promise is. If they promise you for your birthday, they're going to cook your favorite meal. You don't doubt that that's going to happen. You just, you're, that's going to happen. They said that that's going to happen. I trust it. I believe it. I have no reason to doubt the word of my parents. You can expect that on your birthday, you will have your favorite meal because your, word, your, your parents have said it and you trust it. In a very similar way, when the Lord Jesus makes promises in his word, you believe in him in that way. You trust his word. You trust he is who he said he is. You trust he will do what he says he will do. 
when his word says that he died and he rose again so that your sins may be forgiven, you believe in him that your sins may be forgiven. When he says that he's dying to save sinners, you bank your entire life on that promise that he will save me, a sinner, because he said so. And when he says, as he does here in John 6, that the will of the Father is that everyone who believes in him should have eternal life and that Jesus will raise him up on the last day. You trust that promise. And you trust his word. You take hold of it. You embrace it. You love it. You cherish it. You savor it. Knowing that because he said it, he will do it. And it will happen. You believe in him for eternal life and you believe in him for the hope of the resurrection. You believe in him and though you die, yet you shall live forever. That is the most simple, basic message of the gospel. Many a soul have been saved by that simple proclamation. Believe in Jesus and you shall be saved. Believe in the Son and you will have eternal life. You may be familiar with the conversion of the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. It did not come after hearing the most profound discourse of theology that could ever be offered. He stumbled into a little primitive Methodist church where a layman was preaching that morning from the book of Isaiah. And a man just kept repeating, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. And Spurgeon's heart was opened and his eyes were opened to see. And he looked to Jesus and was saved. It is not a complicated matter. It has depths to it. It is a bottomless ocean that you can swim in for the rest of your life. But the most fundamental message of the gospel and our call from God is that we simply believe in Jesus and so be saved. You trust in him, you will have eternal life and he will raise you up on the last day. That, friends, as we are thinking and meditating on and celebrating this Christmas day, that is what all of our calls are to do. To continue to look. Look to the Son. Look and be saved. And the promise of the Word of God is that if we do this, He will indeed save us. Amen. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer.
Father, you command us to proclaim the gospel to all the nations and to call all people to repent and to believe in Jesus. But our words will accomplish nothing unless you, by your Spirit, cause dead hearts to be made alive and to see Jesus for who he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the Savior of sinners. So we pray this morning, we pray specifically for our own children, that as we are remembering the birth of Christ, as we are remembering the call of Christ to believe in him, that he is the Savior, Lord, that these would not just simply be stories of ages past that we tell, but that these very words would be used to bring sinners to yourself. And so, Father, we pray that you would work, that by your Spirit you would work and you would save. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.